So hear the scripture out of Luke 12, 1 to 7. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling on one another, he began to say to his disciples, first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the day, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you the truth. My friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do to you. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not two, five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. So in this passage, Christ says, guard yourself against the calamity of hypocrisy. And he's spoken of hypocrisy in the preceding chapter, chapter 11. He says, your eye is the lamp of the body, verse 34. And when, when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. And then, then he turns to the, the Pharisees and who were there to trap him. And he says this. He says, now, verse 39, the Pharisees, they clean the outside of the cup with great meticulous energy, but inside is full of greed and wickedness. He says, you fools, do not he who made the outside make the inside also. And then he gives three woes. He says, woe to you Pharisees, for, for you tithe your produce to the Lord as you should. He said, it's good to do that. It's biblical to do that. But he says, but you have neglected the weightier issues of justice and the love of God. He says, woe to you Pharisees, for, for you love the best seats, and you love to sit at the head of the table, and you love to be proclaimed as worthy and wonderful. He says, woe to you Pharisees. He says, you're, you're like leading people over unmarked graves in the way you lead. In, in the Old Testament, if you, you, if you walked across a grave, you were ceremonially unclean. And Jesus says, you're leading people across unmarked graves, and they're ceremonially unclean or unclean because they're associating with you. Woe to you, Pharisees. And then you come to chapter 12. And this is amazing to me. Look at the first verse. It says that, that thousands of people were stumbling over themselves trying to get to Christ, trying to hear him, trying to bring their sick to him to be touched and healed. Thousands, not just the hundreds, thousands, the Bible says, were stumbling over one another. And I thought, you know, in the context of thousands of people stumbling, the apogee or the height of your popularity, things are just going incredibly strong and fast. What do you talk about? In the next three Sundays, I'm going to be talking about what was on the heart of the Savior when thousands of people were trying to get to him. And so the, the first issue is this. He pulled his disciples aside. In the midst of thousands of people, he gives them a small teaching time. 
And he says, hear me, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. It's, it's hypocrisy. Beware of the leaven. Now, hypocrisy is wanting to appear to be something that we are not. It's, it's, it's trying to appear better than we really are. We labor to make the external look good while we give no attention to the internal. Let me say this very quickly. We've all talked to people who are involved in scandalous behavior or they're just surly people or they're just hard to get along with and they'll give this ultimate defense. Well, at least I'm not a hypocrite. Well, that's no defense. That's just an omission of a failure. So, but what Christ is attacking here are people who appear one way but live another. They clean the outside of the cup. They love to sit at the head of the table. They love to be applauded in public. But inside, they're not the people God has called us to be. See, hypocrites love to be seen. In Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives some very pointed statement regarding Pharisees. And he says, you know, he says, he says beware of practicing your righteousness to be seen by other people. He says, when you give, don't stand up and say, this is what I'm giving, and make a loud noise with trumpets and tambourines and dancing. He says, if you do that, you're a hypocrite. He says, instead... Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, and so that your, your giving is in secret. And he says, and your father, your father, who sees in secret will reward you. And he says, and when you pray, don't stand on the street corner and give long, prolix, wordy prayers to be seen by people. He says, instead, Go inside your room and close your door and pray in secret. And as you pray in secret, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then he gives a model of prayer called the Lord's Prayer. Verse 16, and when you fast, he says, don't, don't go around with a disfigured face and with a sour look and tell others, I wish I could be partaking of food, but I am not. I am fasting because I am holy and I am a person who has it all together. He says, no, he says, when you fast, put oil on your face and be glad and happy. And he says, and when your father who sees in secret sees what you're doing, he will reward you. See, hypocrites love just to be seen. And I was, I was laboring, I shouldn't say that, but I was reading through the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. And Leviticus is just a, a tough book. But I'm thinking about this theme, and I come to Leviticus 19. Let me just read a part of Leviticus 19. These are the, the, the words given by God to his covenant people as they go into the promised land to keep them from being swallowed up by the nations. He says, I want you to be a, a distinct people. And I want you to realize that you deal with the living God who is eternal, who doesn't change. And this is what he said. Let me just read a few things here. He says this. 
Verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleamings after your harvest. In other words, when you, when you harvest your field, you're to leave something on the edge and not take everything off the vine or everything off the stalk. He says, you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am Jehovah, your God. He says, you, 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 you have a heart of compassion to the poor. I am Jehovah, your God. And you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God because I am Jehovah. See, we deal with God. You shall not oppress your neighbor, verse 13, or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God. I am Jehovah. You shall do no injustice in the courts. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand against the life of your neighbor. I am Jehovah. We deal with God. Last verse. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. I am Jehovah. To me, we deal with God. We deal with God who sees and knows. We deal with a God who knows the inner recesses of our heart and our imagination. And that sets us apart. That sets us apart as, as his people. And so we come to some principles about hypocrisy. I'm just going to give them to you. Number one, we all continually deal with the issue of hypocrisy. Some more than others, but we all deal with it. Let me tell you why I say that. In Matthew chapter 7, this is what the Lord says. The Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 3, he says, why, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Diagram here. They show the, the picture, the log that is in your own eye. Or how do you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log sticking out of your own. You hypocrite. There's the word. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And in other words, a hypocrite is somebody who doesn't realize there is a log in his eye. And that's all of us. Christ says, you are your brother's keeper. You are responsible to stand beside your brother and to encourage him and to point out his faults. But first, deal with your own stuff. So, so I, I, my principle here is I must continually deal with my hypocrisy. Point number two, hypocrisy in the passage we're studying is like leaven. If unchecked, it spreads rapidly. See, 
Christ says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, wanting to be seen as somebody that they're really not. And, and, and leaven just spreads quickly. So I, I've got to stop it. I've got to deal with it. So, so I've got to align my heart with the purposes of God. Leviticus, excuse me, Psalm 19 wonderful psalm and it closes with this prayer and I mentioned it two weeks ago it says that it says who can discern his errors De declare me innocent of hidden faults there's two things here hidden faults keep back your servant from presumptuous or known sins so we have hidden faults and known sins let them not have dominion over me and in the text you say well let them not have dominion does that refer to just known sins or does it refer to hidden faults false and known sins, and I say it refers to both of them. Let, let not hidden faults or known willful sins have, have dominion over me. And then he prays, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And I, I, I'm thinking about this, and I'm going, you know, how, what a, we, we all have hidden faults. Let me tell you a story. It's very embarrassing. Years ago, I went to a conference with a, a very good friend who was on our staff at that time and my wife. And there was a plenary session given about um, being, knowing yourself. And part of it was people who are impulsive. People who are impulsive are people who sometimes make decisions without clearly thinking the ramifications out. Okay? So. We're having lunch after the session, and we're talking. I said, boy, I am so glad I'm not an impulsive person. And my friend and my wife both looked at each other like, oh, my soul. And then they started laughing. And my friend says, you're an incredibly impulsive person. And I went, really? Do you ever have those moments when a friend or your spouse says, boom, and you go, Me? Are you kidding me? Here's the issue. You don't know yourself that well. That's why you need the body of Christ. Um, this past Valentine's Day, I, I had to run by a local grocery store, Harris Teeter, to pick up something. And I was on the way home. It's 4.35 o'clock, 5.30. And, and I, I started dying laughing. It looked like a herd of wildebeest being chased by a lion. All these men come, came running in, and they were all going to the floor area, just grabbing, grabbing flowers and running out the door after they paid for them. And, and I just started, I started laughing. I said, that, that is Valentine's Day. Earlier that day, I had seen a little child dressed like this. <laughs> um, really, the child was about three, but that's the closest... Uh, I could find, but, but running down the hall with his shirt on, said, Chick, man, he was a good-looking little boy. And I thought, it's funny at age three, but at age 27, 28, that's a tragedy. And some people grow up thinking they really are a chick magnet. They really are God's gift to men or women. And I, I just thought, God, in my life, I need people who will fulfill the mandate of Proverbs that says there is a friend who will stick closer than her brother. And that's part of telling you the truth. And in your marriage, 
and your friendships. We should say to one another, tell me the truth, because I have hidden faults. I have hidden faults. And, and, and hypocrisy is all about checking that, those things that, that choke the life out of me. Point number three, hypocrisy's issue is living before an audience of many as compared to living for an audience of one. Listen to verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. God knows it. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So you see, if you live before an audience of many with an outward cup only and a pharisaical mindset, it either leads to incredible narcissism or incredible defeatism. Because defeatism says, I never measure up. I clean up, I do this, I say that, but I know I do not measure up. Or you become very narcissistic. There's a book called The Call by a man named Oz Guinness, and he gives some examples. For example, uh, this woman, Marlena Dietrich. Marlena Dietrich was a well-known actress in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And she was from Germany, and much to her great, the, uh, the Nazis wanted to make her the it girl for their films. And she says, you know, I hate the Nazis, I hate what you stand for. And she never went back to Germany. She stayed in America, and she became someone who entertained our troops during World War II, really at the very edge of battle, putting her life on the line. But, but in her life, she had a string of lovers and broken relationships and so forth and so on, and just all the way up into her latter years. And I read this about Marlena Dietrich who said that, that she, she made a record or a tape of thunderous ovations after plays that she had been in as Toronto and Chicago and L.A. and New York and, and around the world. And, and, and she would have guests in her home and she would say, I want to play something for you. And she would play this record. This is the, crowd, this is the applause after I did this in Toronto. This is what happened after one in New York. And they, she, she would play it for them. And I thought, are you, are you serious? Narcissism. I read about a, a well-known actress in our own day and age, Sharon Stone. This is, this is 15 years ago. It says that, that at that time, she demanded, among other things, $3,500 per week in unaccountable per diem funds when she did a movie. Three nannies, two assistants, a presidential suite, first-class travel, a deluxe motorhome on set, and the rights to keep all the jewelry and clothes that she wore during the film. Even more shocking were the requirements dealing with the publicity of the film. The writer insists that her name is given first position in the credits for the film and that her name be at least as big as the movie's title. Her picture, if it appears in advertising, must be at least as big, if not bigger, than any other person's likeness. No wonder these people get married every other year. Who wants to be married to somebody that thinks like that? Good grief. So it's either defeatism or runaway narcissism. The Apostle Paul is writing to a group of churches in South Galatia. And he starts off out of the gate saying, I cannot believe you're deserting the gospel of grace. And he lays into them. Then he says this in verse 10. For, for, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? 
Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Jesus Christ. I played an audience of one, Paul says. God knows the heart. And the most famous example of knowing the heart in the Bible is a beautiful story. You know it. It's 1 Samuel 16. Samuel, the man of God, the prophet of God, has been called of God to go and anoint the next king over Israel. And he's the son of Jesse. And he goes to this home of a man named Jesse. And he says, Jesse, call your boys in. And Jesse calls in his boys. And the first one is Eliab, the eldest. In Jewish mind thinking, that the eldest is to be the prominent, the heir, number one. And Samuel's impressed with Eliab. He must have been a good-looking man with stature and a guy that would lead. I, I would follow him. He's tall. He's handsome. He's got it together. And the Lord rebukes Samuel and says, Samuel, don't look at his outward appearance or the height of his stature. For God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So Samuel turns to Jesse, he says, bring in the second one. God says, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him. Seven men. And Samuel turns to Jesse in exasperation and says, is there anybody else? Did I go to the wrong address? And Jesse says, well, there's the youngest. But he's tending sheep. Didn't even call him in. He's the, he's the youngest. I mean, he's number eight on the totem pole. And he barely gets anything when the family's fed. He says, called him in. The Bible says that David came in, and he was a ruddy youth with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. He was red-faced. Maybe because he ran up from the, from, the, from the lower 40. I don't know. Ruddy, beautiful eyes, handsome appearance. The Lord says, arise, anoint him. He is the one. And the Bible refers to David time after time and all the ups and downs of his life as a man after God's own heart. Hypocrisy is centered around living before many instead of before an audience of, of one. Number four, the, the, the slayer of the fear of, 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 of man is the fear of God. The slayer of hypocrisy is the fear of God. Listen to what Jesus says. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do to you. But I tell you, and I warn you, whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not two sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And, and, and so he says, fear, fear not. So how do you put that together? There's a quote in your worship guide from a man named John Murray, who's a theologian at Princeton and then Westminster. And this is what John Murray says. There is a dread or terror of the Lord. And then there is a fear of reverential awe. Dread and terror, reverential awe and worship. There is the fear that consists in being afraid and it leads to anguish and terror. 
And there is a fear of reverence that leads to confidence and love. There's two types of fear in the Bible. There's dread and terror that immobilizes and pushes you to insanity. And there is the fear of a child. Reverential awe, adoration, joyful confidence. This fear is the beginning of wisdom. This fear is destructive. This fear has no place to hide. This fear hides in the shadow of the cross and glories in that. So I've got this little chart just to, just to walk through. So, so the, the fear of dread and terror, clearly seen in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve fall into sin. Their eyes are open. They see their sin. They see the holiness of God and their distance from him. And so Adam and Eve get together and they make fig leaves to cover up their, their nudity. And so God comes into the Garden of Eden and he says, Adam, where are you? And he says, we're over here. And he says, uh, what's going on, Adam? He says, well, I, we hid because we, we were naked. And the Lord says, Adam, who told you you were naked? And then they talk to this thing called original sin. And the Lord, this is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, Genesis 3, 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Saying, fig leaves will not do. It's only the shedding of the blood that will cover your sin. For signifying the Lamb of God, Jesus, who would take away the sin of the world. So Adam and Eve hid in terror. We don't hide. We run to the cross. The second thing about this is that, is that the context is that servile fear or the fear of terror is one that thinks about and postures and is sleepless nights about abandonment and being forsaken. But the fear of the son and daughter, the respect and the awe, is built around security. Let, let me read this passage. This is Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16. It's a beautiful statement. It says this. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Think about this. Can a woman ever forget her nursing child? It's impossible to think. It's just outside of the realm of possibility. But he says this. Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraven you on the palms of my hands. The Lord says, you know, it's conceivable in your wildest, darkest imagination that a nursing mother would forsake her child. It's in the realm of possibility, even though you can't imagine it. He says, but even in the wildest, darkest imagination that that would happen, I will never forsake you. I'll never cast you out. I'll never abandon you. You're my child by faith. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Your names are engraven on the palms 
of your hands. My hands. So in Luke chapter 11, Christ says this. Verse 11. He says, What father among you? And these are good dads. Good, good dads. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Nobody's going to do that. He says, if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Matthew account says, good, give good gifts to those who ask him. He says, if you then, though you are evil. Church, I, as a child of God, never fear being abandoned. I do not fear being cast out. Because the blood of Jesus has cleansed me from my sins. I do fear losing my joy and my usefulness because of sin. I do fear the discipline of my Abba Father because he disciplines those whom he loves. When we're outside, off the, off the mark, he puts us back on. I, I, I fear the closeness of rejoicing in his goodness. But I do not fear abandonment. I do not fear being cast out. Uh, see, when, when you understand the Abba love of God and you walk in the reverential awe, the fear of God, it, it, it builds hope and confidence. Listen to Jeremiah. It's in, it's in your worship. God. Jeremiah 32 says this, verse 38 and following. And I shall, they shall be my people and I will be their God and I will give them one heart. And one mind, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. Do you hear that? We reverence God for our own good and our children and our grandchildren. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. God says, I'll make them reverence me and worship me and love me and sing and rejoice and be serious about me so it will be a blessing to them and their children and their children's children. Man, I need that. See, God says, I'm going to make a covenant with them which is firm and true and fixed. And see, that's why... Marriage, we have a number of couples sitting here today that are engaged and they're going to be married and some people are newly married and they're doing this marriage thing and we have this re-engaged starting, this glorious and good and so I just step back and I look at marriage from God's perspective and it is glorious and is full of light and hard work and energy and it's fixed. And, and there are reasons that marriages fall apart biblically, but, but apart from that, it's fixed. You work things out. What a glorious concept is a covenant. And see, the marriage covenant, Ephesians 5 says, reflects God the Father's love for his church. Because you, you're there, and, and you walk, and you care, and you embrace, and you do the right thing. 
And I, I don't know how anybody ever enters into mar marriage can have more worries than Nats and Charleston in April. It can. I don't know how anybody enters into marriage without a foundation that is fixed and true and firm. If you go into marriage thing, saying, I, I will love you as long as you love me, or I'll, I'll meet your needs if you meet my needs, man, you're, that's a dead end road real quickly. That's a cul-de-sac called divorce. But if you're in a marriage saying, you know, we're in this together, and we're going to struggle and love, but we're going to stand at the cross of Jesus, and we're going to let the Holy Spirit change us, and we're going to walk in forgiveness and tenderness, and we're going to be submissive to the Word of God, and we're going to hang out with other people at the same mindset, and they're going for it, and we're going to live in such a way that our children and our grandchildren say, thanks be to God, those old people did it. See, that's reflection of the love that God has for His church. His commitment to us. So I don't fear being abandoned. I fear losing my joy. I don't fear being cast out. I fear losing my usefulness. So I want you to see this in the text. Is it 1042? I want to honor your team. Okay, I'm I gotta do this real fast. I've been talking slowly till now. I'm gonna talk fast now. Okay. Anyway, it, 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 listen, church. It, please read the Bible in context. If you don't read the Bible in context, you can get into a, a place where you shouldn't be. For example, verse five says this: "I warn you." Whom to fear, fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And you go, whoa. But verse 6 explains verse 5. <laughs> Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why? Even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. So explain that. Well, have a reverential fear of God, but don't have the craven fear of a servant who has a capricious master who beats him every night. Your Abba Father loves the created order. Your Abba Father loves sparrows. And yet you can buy two sparrows for just a couple of pennies. Understand this. God has numbered the hair upon your head. You're worth more than five boatloads of sparrows. Rejoice. Recently, the Wall Street Journal had an article. Let's get over It was entitled, You're a Warrior, Don't Worry. And it shows a, a woman in the middle of the night uh, worrying about a traffic citation. They call it a citation. That's interesting to me. It's a ticket. Uh, citation is something good for being a good guy. This is not something, anyway, traffic citation. It's a ticket. And she wakes up in the middle of the night, and, and she's worrying, and her husband is sitting there uh, trying to go to sleep, even though she's tossing and turning. And, 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 and the title of the article is, You're a Warrior, Don't Worry. And then it says, This is How You Conquer Worry. And it gives several bullet points. I'll give you a few of them. Uh, number one, tell yourself a better story. 
In the midst of your worry, just rehearse a better story. Number two, set a timer. 15 minutes, I'm going to worry. When it goes off, you stop worrying. That doesn't work for me. I mean, really, I'm, this is an article from the Wall Street Journal. This is an outstanding newspaper written by intelligent people. I'm going, you got to be kidding me. No, if you tell me, stop worrying, you know what I'm going to start doing? I'm going to worry. Don't think about pink elephants. Okay, I won't think about pink elephants. I mean, come on. This is the best they can do. I mean, I, it says set, set a time. Yell shred. And you see your worries going through a shredder. This is a Wall Street Journal. This isn't? No. Um, distract yourself with music or exercise or a good book or a movie. You know, when I'm distracting myself, you know, no, I'm, I'm worrying. Let me tell you a better way. A better way is to read this passage and say, Lord, you know, I've got worries. But the Bible says you're Abba Father and that you love me with an everlasting love. I'm to reverence you. I'm to stand in awe of you. I'm to rejoice in you. I'm to run to you. And Lord, I thank you that your eye is on the sparrow and me. I thank you that you've numbered the hair upon my head, and I don't know what's going to happen to this cancer. I don't know what's going to happen to this physical I just had. They said, I've got some issues with heart disease. I don't know what's going to happen with my son or my daughter. I don't know what's going to happen with this job. But Lord, I thank you that you've told us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. So Lord, I am trusting you with this day my daily bread. And, and Lord, at the end of the day, when I go to sleep at night, I confess to you, I am a pilgrim here. The best is yet to be. That's better than setting a timer. That's better than hollering, shred. That's better than distracting yourself. You run to the Father. That is our heritage. So church, beware of hypocrisy by living a life that is open for the God. Don't play to an audience of many. Play to an audience of one. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day you've given us and for the mercy and goodness of Christ. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body and the hope everlasting. Thank you that you are eternally gracious and good. Lord, I, I really, all of us deal with hypocrisy. Every person here. And... Uh, so I pray that daily we'd get the log out of our eye, that daily we would come to you. And God, by the Holy Spirit, make us the people we should be. And let us play to an audience of one. Blessed be your name this day. Thank you that there's no fear of being cast out if we're in Jesus. Thank you there's no fear of being cast aside because you're Abba Father by the work of the cross. So bring that assurance and that joy and that song to our heart this day, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.